I want to rock. Now, yesterday and today, our internet's been jammed with newspaper men and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation. And these veterans agreed with me that this World Wide Web has never witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Seattle who call themselves Rock Talk. Now, tonight, you're going to once be entertained by them. Ladies and gentlemen, Rock Talk, let's bring them on. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. I'm John Otney. And I'm Colin Westman. And this is Rock Talk, the podcast where we talk rock and roll all night and once every couple of weeks, it seems like. It's not super consistent. No, but we're doing it. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, we're always rocking like in our spare time. I don't think we only rock like once every couple of weeks. So this week we're talking about a subject very dear to our hearts. If you couldn't tell from the introduction, that is everyone's favorite fab for the Beatles. If you didn't know, a Beatles documentary directed by Ron Howard was released recently. It had a limited theatrical release. It is now available on Hulu. Colin and I each watched it, and we'll talk about it a little. And then we're going to talk about our favorite early Beatles songs. Now, what does that mean, Colin? Early Beatles songs. Um, I th- I think uh, the parameters I I gave you was everything pre Rubber Soul, I guess, because that's when I feel like the band transitioned into being just an album band which i guess is kind of like the line that is drawn in this documentary called eight days a week it's it's supposed to be just about their touring years and i feel like you know they once they did rubber soul they're like dude we can just make albums (laughs) (laughs) could you imagine can you imagine We're going to do so many terrible Beatles impressions. Just want to give the listener a fair warning about that. (laughs) And, I mean, yeah, when they did Rubber Soul, it kind of coincided with the fact that, like, the the touring thing was just fucking madness. Because it's just, like, girls screaming nonstop. Like, I also listened to the... they also came out with a live album as sort of a companion to this documentary. That was their performance at the Hollywood Bowl. And it's, it's, it is really weird to just listen to a live album where there's just screaming going on in the background of every song. It doesn't, like, let up at all. And we can get into that. Um, so I guess my first question before we jump into this is, now, there's been a lot of documentaries about the Beatles. I mean, if you had to, you know, list out every single rock band, I bet the Beatles probably have the most uh, documentaries. So I'm going to ask you, Colin, with all the Beatles documentaries that already exist, did this movie need to be made? <laughs> um, I mean, with the Beatles, like, I, I'm okay with stuffing stuff still being made about them just because I kind of that fear of like young people not knowing at all what they're like or what their importance would be. And I feel like this documentary, even though it like, you know, it cuts out a lot of stuff (laughs) that it could have covered. It's a, you know, it's a very, it's what, like an hour and 40 minutes and you're talking about four years, you know, documenting, documenting the most important (laughs) pop group of the 20th century but i feel like that also kind of works in its favor because i think how sort of like concentrated it is it really sort of like 
captures the excitement of the Beatles in their like first few years. Like you get a rush, I think, watching this movie, even if you've seen this stuff like a million times. Like I don't know if there was any really revealing information of it, but like watching the performances and sort of the pace of the movie, I thought captured the excitement of the Beatles. If anything, it was a nice refresher for me on certain details I may have forgotten from all the Beatles information I've taken in over the years. Like, mm-hmm. I'll never remember all of it. So every once in a while I'll be like, oh, yeah. Like, I didn't realize, or I, at least I probably knew, but forgot, like, how short that American tour was and how, like, hard it was to actually go to those shows mm-hmm. and, like, how shitty Shea Stadium <laughs> sounded and how, like, they could just not, ha- they did not anticipate this kind of, like, hype for the group and like how everything would work because there had never been anything like that before there had never been a rock band that had played to fifty thousand people so yeah how, how could they have been prepared for it i almost wish they could have interviewed people who were like working there and you know that's something that i think this documentary it would have really improved it is it always goes for the flashy interviews you know i mean obviously you're gonna have paul and ringo i mean you should they were there <laughs> But then, like, you have, like, I mean, like, Sigourney Weaver and Whoopi Goldberg. And, yeah, they were, like, fans and they went to shows and stuff. But, like, I want, like, technicians or, like, cab drivers or, like, just regular people who are there. I want to see it from their eyes and hear what it was like from their perspective. And we, we so rarely get that. I think that was kind of a missed opportunity here was to get even more insight. This seems almost more like kind of a broad stroke. Yeah. I mean, to that end, I like the fact that they interviewed their american tour manager i can't remember what his name was but because I, I i feel like i've gotten sort of the inside story because i i've watched that beatles anthology documentary but that's definitely one where it's really just the people who are working on the inside of it i think they only interviewed the three beatles that were alive then and then like George Martin, Neil Aspinall, and Derek Taylor, and that's it. Like, I thought it was kind of nice getting interviews from other people just to sort of give the Beatles kind of a societal context and stuff. I mean, yeah, I think Whoopi, like, Whoopi Goldberg actually was a pretty good story because she was no, at Shea was, Stadium. Yeah, that was a good story, talking about her mom getting her a, a ticket to go to that concert, and it was like the best thing she could have ever imagined. And I guess I don't mind that so much, but I, I guess I want more of those mm-hmm. from people. I want to hear people's personal connection to going to these shows and uh, and more like technical things. But I mean, like like you said, anthology was pretty, it, it covered a lot. Yeah, it's like an eight part documentary and they're all two hour long episodes. <laughs> it's a 16 hour documentary. It's yeah. So this is just like, like I say, it's like a refresher. And maybe there's a few details they threw in that I wasn't aware of or forgot. One that I really liked was, I I must have known about this at some point, but Larry Kane, who was a journalist, followed them, accompanied them on their American tour mm-hmm. and talked about his experiences with them. Like, oh, we were almost crushed and stuff. And he's interviewing them all the time. And, you know, it was like, dad was like, you better watch out for them wild kids. This is crazy. And, like, he didn't want to do it because, like, there's so much news going on with, like, Vietnam and, like, the death of Kennedy. And it's like, I don't want to go follow a band. Yeah. Like it almost seems like you could have done it from his perspective. Maybe not enough interesting stuff happened, you know. Uh, but I did enjoy that quite a bit. I guess another thing around people with the Beatles and getting interviews is like I feel like 
so many people that witnessed them or were connected to them are kind of dead now. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been over 50 years at this point. It's, yeah, it's kind of getting to that point where we are sort of, we don't have as much of a connection to the people that were there. Now it's more like my parents. Here's a story my parents told me. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I had to throw in stuff that I would have liked to see, though, I feel like we never get enough. I guess in anthology, we get plenty of this. But uh, the Beatles' early years in like uh, Liverpool, and then going to Hamburg. Like that's. I feel like that's really where they really cut their teeth live. Now that's super interesting. The, yeah, the progression they went through. They sort of like became themselves in in Hamburg, but I mean, there's not like a lot of footage, I guess, or there's some photographs, but yeah, they really just glazed over that portion. Because I think the kind of perspective they're going for here was we're going to start this right when Beatlemania started, right when America got into this. This is like an American point of view for the most part. Like yeah. it starts with Ed Sullivan's show. That's where it begins. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's how everyone over here heard about him. So, I mean, that works, I guess. It's just tough when, like, I know so much of this already. And I can't remember if I watched this with you or who I watched this with. I remember once going to Scarecrow Video and actually renting a DVD of the the first Washington, D.C. show. I don't know if you've seen that. Or I don't think I have, but, I've, I mean, I've definitely seen clips because they show a bunch of it in the anthology episode that it's featured in so i even already knew about that actually they should have gone uh i feel like more into that show because that show was a fucking mess like <laughs> sound wise it sounded bad and they set up the stage where there's people on both sides of them you saw in this documentary ringo's like turning his drums around because they had to keep switching sides yeah but it's like who wants to watch the back of the beatles i mean <laughs> i guess hundreds of people thousands of people but it was just very bizarre that they did it like that like they're going to finally be playing shows. And it's like, here's Ringo's butt. But again, it's another thing we have to think about. Like they weren't used to this. Like the idea of a rock band was a completely new novelty. Like they had like Elvis and rockabilly and stuff, but it was still like, I don't know. The focus is kind of pointed on one guy on stage where the Beatles, it's like this democracy. (laughs) And And they played like I feel like it's a, a more electric sound that they were doing than a lot of what had happened in rock up to that point. So yeah, just no one was prepared. I was worried about halfway into the documentary that I wasn't going to get enough of their personal kind of issues with how it was stressful. Mm-hmm. And we got a little of that in the end. Like they're definitely talking about how like, you know, how it was frustrating and, this you weren't enjoying the shows as much but i feel like i mean was it that it had to have been stressful like all the time right like i don't know like i still don't really know and this has probably been documented somewhere how the beatles like felt during most of this did they mostly have fun was it always like a pain in the ass was it a little bit of both i'm not sure yeah i don't know i think i feel like there was some line i don't know who it was but one of them said like you know, we were so young and we didn't know what it was. We just kind of went along for the ride. Like, that's kind of the feeling I get when I watch them playing and just sort of trying to make sense of this. Because how could you? You're living in the eye of this 
hurricane of madness <laughs> happening all around you. It's like, what can you do? Just play your songs and hope for the best and don't piss anybody off, which they eventually did. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh yeah, the Philippines. Yep. Do they still hate the Beatles? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know, I often forget how young they were. How old was George Harrison when the Beatles broke up? Twenty six. <laughs> Freaking ridiculous. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, they're not gonna call the best decisions, but I feel like that was smart that they stopped. Like, you're like, fuck it, we're gonna. Can you imagine if they'd taken like? I don't know, Sgt. Pepper's on tour? Actually. I mean, that was the thing, is they started writing songs that were unproducible live. And I think that's part of the Beatles' legacy, is how much they started to explore the studio as kind of an instrument unto itself. Like, they do get a bit into the song Tomorrow Never Knows, and I still feel like that song is like came out of nowhere it came from fucking outer space and it still doesn't sound like anything and you can't play it live forget about it i'm sure oasis has <laughs> yeah i bet <laughs> it's probably really good <laughs> yeah i think that's the thing like aside from the stress of the road it just it was limiting their potential like because they'd work on a single for like six months and they can't do that and tour if you, you like if they'd kept touring, the songs wouldn't have been like quite as good. You know, they needed to stop. Mm-hmm. And plus, you can definitely see into the end from, especially those Japan shows, they're starting to do like, I can't remember if they're doing Drive My Car, but they're definitely doing Nowhere Man and like Paperback Rider. Yeah. And they were, they just sound good. It's too hard to do. The, con- <laughs> the harmonies were too complicated, especially Paperback Rider. If you always, if you ever seen the, performance of that where they have to strum the guitars to make sure they're all in the right like key yeah i I bet i wonder if there's a dvd of that there probably is of the japan show because i feel like that is a one of their last shows or at least last one that's filmed and that people can watch Mm how do you feel about the colorization of some of the (laughs) performances i thought it looked okay what was what was black and white that they colorized i think they colorized the uh, ed sullivan thing and they all and also the dc show maybe in parts i don't know if they colorized all of it i didn't even notice so i guess it was good so it must have been pretty good, yeah. <laughs> uh maybe i don't know maybe if i watched again I'm like, oh yeah well obviously that was maybe i wasn't paying close enough attention to those uh bits yeah um uh, but no i love the i almost wish there was a little more live footage i love watching them play because there's only there's only so much of it like so much footage of the Beatles playing. So it's really exciting when you get to see them go out there. You know, because I've heard people be like, like Keith Richards be like, they want a very good life, man. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they tried, I think they did the best they could at the time with the equipment and like with the resources they had. I mean, they're playing with like these in these areas where it's like, there's so many people, you can't like hear what you're doing. <laughs> And, like, I'm sure equipment's getting blown out just so freaking loud. It's like, what do you expect them to do? I mean, even if their playing isn't perfect in those performances, there's still, like, a buzz and an excitement in the room that you can't really get from any other band's live performances. So, yeah. No, I think they were fine live band. I'm sure there's people... I'm sure even me, like, in my younger years was like, Oh, Beatles are very good live. (laughs) 
don't know why I say it so stuffy. Well, you've, you've changed a lot in those years. <laughs> well, I'm better than the Beatles at playing music. <laughs> bullshit like that. Yeah. Like, they were competent. They had, like you said, they had, like, a buzz, energy. I also like the other thing that they kind of focused on, like, their sense of humor. Like, I, I look at that and I see, like, oh, this this makes sense that I love the Beatles as much as they as I did because they were just four guys just didn't, like, give a shit about the sort of more surface-level crap that happens in the music industry. They just... We're wising off at every opportunity. One clip I'm not sure if I'd ever seen. I want to say it was around the time of the Washington DC show. Is there some journalist interviewing John? And he clearly like it's just like a like a job for him. He doesn't really know anything about the band. And he's like, "Which one are you?" And John Lynn goes, "Eric." He's like, "Okay, well, Eric, uh, what can you tell us?" And he goes, "No, it's John." <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, John. <laughs> it's like that's so that's like Borat stuff. That is so awkward. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, that guy's not being like mean or anything. He's just trying to do his job. Why are you trolling? <laughs> but it's funny. It's fun to watch. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it totally makes sense why Hard Day's Night is as good as it is considering they had no acting experience. You know? Yeah, they had witty comebacks. Like they were some basically, people... they were like just as much of a comedy troupe as a rock band at that point. It's pretty awesome. Because some people would, like, give them, like, really, like, snarky comments, you know, like, oh, your boy band, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like they'd always have something clever to say, you know. And I know they were, like, into comedy. Like, in their later years, they were really into Monty Python, and they also liked, like, the goons and, like, Peter Sellers. Like, they were they were smart, savvy, funny guys. Funny funny lads. <laughs> Cheeky lads. I'm not sure what your Beatles is supposed to be now. I think Ringo. <laughs> That was definitely part of their charm. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Hard Day's Night. You know, this is not really not that interesting, but I didn't realize Richard Lester was American. Did you? I think I knew that. I think I probably knew that and then forgot it. And then I didn't even think about it when I saw this documentary. They didn't interview yeah. him. I hear, He's still alive. I, was gonna say, I hear he's still alive. I thought they did it. I thought they did interview him. Well, they had a clip of him from like the '60s talking. I don't remember one from today. Was there Pretty one? Pretty sure today? they did interview him. He's just so old; he didn't recognize, him. even though he looks like exactly the same. Just like some bald guy. Yeah, bald guys age well because <laughs> they just remain bald guys. Yeah. It really made me want to watch Hard Day's Night again. Mm-hmm. Not so much Help. Have you tried to watch Help again in recent years? I've no, I've only it's seen it the one. Pretty time. like it's like for kids. Yeah, <laughs> it looks really good. Like I think someone had a great comment in the in eight days a week that every image that Richard Lester shoots looks like it could be a Time magazine cover, <laughs> which I liked because yeah, Hard Day's Night and Help are both really well shot. And that was cool, like how they're talking about how it's like, oh, if you can't see them live, it's like you're kind of seeing them like like their their movies going on the road. <laughs> It's like there's all this exposure. But yeah, I think for me, I just wanted to see maybe more interviews with new newer people. They don't have to be famous people. You know, they just be anybody. There probably is a documentary like that I don't know about. I bet there's a documentary called like I was there. I was there. Well what it have to be a don't have to be named after a Beatles song. It's like I saw them standing there. <laughs> standing there. 
it's weird. It makes them sound like they weren't playing music. <laughs> they just went on stage and stood there, and everybody cheered. He wants to have a good stand. <laughs> mm, it's a good stand, right? Oh, standing here. <laughs> I'm doing George. Because I'm the only person I know who attempts a George. Mm-hmm. This is a George Edison. <clears throat> yeah? Yeah. Mine's usually just a combination of Paul and Ringo. How we doing here, lads? Yeah, because that's definitely like that's Paul's energy, but it's kind of low. Like he's kind of sleepy or, or he's been <laughs> yeah. having a couple of drinks. <laughs> but I'd say that's mostly Paul. Better get in the studio, boys. I don't know that there's that much more to talk about in regards to this movie. It's like, like I said, it's a refresher, but there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. And I think you made a good point that like. You know, there's new generations that keep coming along, and they need, you know, good introductions to, to the band. Do you think this is a good introduction for someone who doesn't really know anything about the Beatles? Yeah, I think so. That's good. I mean, because like, as I said, it captures the excitement. I think young people like excitement. <laughs> well, like I think about how, like for example, we got like really into Led Zeppelin like seventh, eighth grade, and it's yeah. like for us, it felt all new at that time. Though I'm sure, like, my parents were like, oh, God, I was into this, like, like 20, 30 years ago. I don't, I'm not interested. This is not relevant. But when you're coming of age, this stuff seems new and relevant. So I'm sure there's some people that's like, I'm just getting the Beatles now, and now this documentary is coming out. It's, it's, it's like the perfect time for be Beatles fans. <laughs> so I think you need to keep doing that. And, you know, I guess as long as they're still alive, yeah, take advantage of it because there's only so many more documentaries you can make. I don't know if you could do maybe a documentary about the studio years. But again, it's like we have anthology. I wouldn't mind watching it again someday, but it is a commitment. Yeah, I've, I've definitely thought about rewatching it. It's, it's been quite a few years. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. I don't know if, if I've seen any other really good Beatles documentaries. I heard there's one I used to like when I was a kid. Oh, what was it called? I just remember it was like a good documentary, but it didn't have the rights to any of the music. <laughs> so like every time they'd, they'd show like a picture of them in like Hamburg or something, they'd just have like some crap like ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, yes, I remember that song. <laughs> Shitty sounding mini guitar. <laughs> but no, I think Anthology covers most of it. But this is like a nice companion piece if you need a little more. And it sounds like that album... I don't know, was that album good that you used to the live? I think, yeah, I enjoyed listening to it. <laughs> How long were their shows? Not long. I feel like they were usually like a half hour to 45 minutes. you imagine like going, you know, like traveling across town and then like waiting probably for a couple hours and like the hugest group of people you've ever been around in your entire life and then watching <laughs> a 30 minute performance that you can kind of hear? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, was that? I mean, it was. I'm sure it was exciting, but was like, did that like sound good? I don't know. Another reason why, like, yeah, they're just too big to play live. Okay, everyone's gonna fucking ruin the show. We should all appreciate that they took that next level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, I think we both liked it fine. Uh, Ron Howard, you know, he's always uh, does acceptable work. <laughs> I believe we gave him the mildly pleased Lifetime Achievement Award earlier this year. He's like the student who always turns his paper in on time, but like it, it gets an okay grade, you know. Yeah. 
but he's, he's competent. B. Solid guy. Everyone likes him. And uh, if people want to see this, yeah, it's on Hulu, which is pretty convenient uh, for me because I, I I'd heard about this documentary. I was like, oh, I don't want to go to some theater to go see it. But it's like, well, Hulu, you know, it only came out like uh, on Hulu like a week after it came out in theaters, and that was just like last month in September. So yeah, uh, check it out. I think you'll have a good time. So let's move on to our list. I'm excited to do this because I have no idea if our lists are going to be exactly the same or vastly different. I feel like they'll be kind of different. Although I've, I think I found myself being like, eh, there's not that big of a well to pull from with the early Beatles stuff because I, you know, I can't help but like the later stuff more. Well, one thing I find interesting about both you and I is I feel like we're both people to not to try to gravitate away from like the bigger songs and go for the deeper cuts. Like trying I figured to get that's deep what into we it. do. But there's a couple ones where it's like, I'm not going to like lie to myself and say that I like this song. I like, you know, haven't heard as much over like this classic. Yeah. So I definitely have, I probably have uh, maybe two, three songs that are like, okay, these would be on everyone's list if they made this same list with these same rules yeah no i definitely got some heavy hitters because it's just hard not to (laughs) with the beatles because so many of their songs are super famous and also super good yeah i don't know that i'm gonna have much to say about each one probably not that's fine i mean we got 10 songs to get through that's a lot that's maybe 20 songs total who knows i think my number one will be a nice surprise because it's a song that is very dear to my heart but I don't think is like a Beatles classic to most people. So that'll be fun. But I'll start off with my number 10, which is a song everybody knows, which is I Saw Her Standing There. It's the first song on the first album, isn't it? Yep. And I just feel like it's such a good introduction. And like in my eyes, it's like, oh, well, this is probably like one of the first songs they played or like the first song they played in Ed Sullivan. But I think the first song they played was All My Loving. That sounds right. Which is weird because everyone wants to think it's like, oh, it's like I want to hold your hand or something. But no, I think it's like, but I saw her standing there. It's just, it's like, it's catchy. It's upbeat. It's quick. It's, it, it's like if they were playing those shows back then, I would imagine this should be your opener. I don't know if it often was, but it just, it really, it really gets things going. Well, I feel like wasn't Please Please Me supposed to be sort of representative of their live set at the time? That makes sense. <laughs> so I feel like it probably was their opener. And that's kind of the thing I like about that album. Like, I feel like if you pick it apart song by song, like, not every song on it is amazing, but it definitely has that immediacy of a band who's, like, young and ready and just, like, cranking out these songs that they've sort of road-tested. All right, Colin, what's your number 10? Uh, my number 10, I wanted to go with a cover because I feel like that's a big part of their early discography, even if I'm not <laughs> in love with that fact because I feel like a lot of the time when I listen to some of those early Beatles records, I'm just like, why didn't you guys just write more songs? And it's because they didn't have time to write that many songs as they were touring. But the record company's like, well, we got to get more albums out, boys. <laughs> like they talk like the Beatles, too. That's like Brian Epstein. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I guess the head of EMI. But... Uh... Yeah, so I went with uh, Money. That's what I want. Because that one's... I don't, I'm not really familiar with the original. What is it? Barrett Strong or something? I don't, I don't know. I just assume everything's Isley Brothers or whatever they're called. Yeah, it's, it's some sort of Motown 
soul thing, but it's a, it's got that cool opening piano riff and it's just kind of rocking. And okay, real talk. Who do you think is the better like hard rock singer, John Lennon or Paul McCartney? Ooh, interesting. Because I feel like John wrote more rockers, and like you can't really fuck with his performance on Twisted Shout. Well, I got such a good rock vocal <laughs> performance. But at the same time, Paul McCartney had like the Little Richard thing where he's screaming stuff. I don't know. I think they're both good. <laughs> I go with John, and I think this. I think Money is a great example of that. Yeah. I just feel like, like Paul, like yeah, he's got a great voice, and he's got, a, I think, a better falsetto for sure. But like John can like scream better, and I feel like from John it feels more genuine because John Lennon kind of seemed like, and I wouldn't say like a bad kid, but way more of a rebel than anyone else in the band. So when he's like acting like rebellious, like I buy it. Okay, so my number nine is. I'm a loser. Just because I like that. I just. I, I love that they're singing I'm a loser. You're the Beatles. <laughs> it's like, what are you, Beck? This ain't the 90s. <laughs> you think any time travelers were saying that? Oh, I should have kept track. I believe that's on Beatles for sale. I, yeah, I don't have much to say about it. I just. I like the, the lyrics. I, it sounds good. That's going to be my what I'm going to say for most of them. <laughs> it sounds good, and I like the lyrics. I mean, this was one that I believe people have said it was when John Lennon first discovered Bob Dylan, and he sort of had a big impact on his songwriting and doing more sort of introspective stuff. And also, he played harmonica on this song. Isn't there some harmonica? Yeah, so he's like, Dyl Dylan's doing it. <laughs> Why can't I? Dylan's doing it. Damon's John Lennon's doing hard. It. Yeah, he's more nasally. Because I just go extreme nasally to do George. John and George are nasally. <laughs> Ringo and Paul are just kind of asleep. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, so mine are not... I even, like, I didn't think about these rankings, by the way. This one's what I just like. I like it. It's not like an amazing, remarkable song, but I chose This Boy. It's just, it's just got a little nice little guitar pattern. It's, I don't know. It's got an interesting time signature. Is that like a B side? Is that... Yeah, it's a B side. I chose a couple B sides. Yeah, I it. chose. I definitely chose uh, one or two that aren't on albums that are like singles. Well, you have to at this point if you listen to the Beatles as much as I have. And I, I feel like I'm like at this point I know basically every Beatles song because I just got done a few months ago reading this book called Revolution in the Head by Ian McDonald, which came out. I don't know, early 2000, maybe late 90s, but it basically goes through the history of the Beatles by talking about every single song in their discography. So I got to know, I got to know B-sides a little better by reading it. I love books like that. We're going to break down every Yeah, I should lend it to you. It's really good. You know, it does a bad job with those. Have you ever seen those like movie or TV books that are like, like I have one called The Twilight Zone Fact, you know, FAQ. They have like, and they have like the Wizard of Oz fact. Never get one of those books. They're bad. I have like this Twilight. I have the Twilight Zone one, and it seems like every like entry was like, I just looked at Wikipedia real quick and then wrote this down. It does not give you enough information. Yeah. So hopefully, what was this? What was this book you read called? Revolution in the Head. Revolution in the Head. Yeah. And the also kind of great thing about it is. Uh, McDonald is a very sort of objective writer in the way he 
kind of critiques the Beatles songs. Like he's willing to be like, yeah, they weren't trying that hard on this song, clearly. <laughs> Which is nice, because with the Beatles, it's hard not to feel anything but just pure love for everything they did. But it's like, mm, <laughs> they had limitations. All right, I believe we're on eight. Oh, we, neither of us made a number nine joke. Number nine. We suck. Yeah. <laughs> number eight. Number eight. My number eight is What You're Doing, also from Beatles for Sale. Love that riff. What you That's a classic George Harris. Yeah, and the drums are sweet. You know, I actually have... Did you ever listen to the Beatles Love, the... Cirque du Soleil soundtrack. Not really. I think I'm only really familiar with the Within You Without You Tomorrow Never Knows mashup. Oh yeah, it was in Beatles Rock Band. Yeah, but I don't think I ever actually listened to the full CD. I tried listening to that recently and it actually kind of pissed me off because you'll be you'll, you'll hear like one minute of a song and then it'll like come, become another song. You're like I kind of just wish I was listening to the actual songs now. I'd be like, looking through a glass on your paper about a revolution. Dun. Uh, it's kind of like that that one Harry Nilsson song that he did on his first album. You, you can't do he, that. Yeah, or he's mashed up a bunch of Beatles songs. That's a cool song. I love that. Paperback writer. That's definitely in there. But what you're doing has a, like the best, my favorite mashup on Love. They combine it with... Um, uh, what is it? The word? Say the word and you'll be free. It sounds really cool. Like, you wouldn't think it'd work, but it totally works. It's hard for me to, like, explain to you how that sounds, because I'd have to do two separate things at once, like one of those weird monks. But trust me, it's cool. Um, but yeah, great riff. I mean, you kept doing the drum part, so... <laughs> it's a cool drum part. It is a cool drum part. I mean, like, you can give Ringo lots of shit for... <laughs> being the luckiest musician in the history of music but like his drum parts were very tasteful they they gave the songs exactly what they needed and sometimes he would surprise you with things where you're like huh? how, do you, how do you think of that I, I think that's one of those beats <laughs> i mean not to bash another musician that i like but like i feel like ringo Starr is about a million times more interesting than someone like charlie watts <laughs> fucking money beats you didn't play on You Can't Always Get What You Want. You didn't? No. Jimmy Miller, the producer, played on it. Because he couldn't master the groove. It's because he's not groovy. He's the most white English person in existence. <laughs> yeah. He's got a permanent scowl on his face. <laughs> Ringo, he's loose and fun. Bobbing his head. How can you not love that guy? Alright, your number eight, Colin. My number eight is when we're talking about George. Here's an early George composition. I need you from uh, from help. I guess I just really like that guitar sound. I, I don't know what the effect is that they're using, but it's some sort of like delay thing where it's just like <laughs> It's interesting to think that George was as experimental as like 1964 and 5, you know? What was that from? Is from Help? That's off the Help album. I don't remember if they played in the movie. Maybe they do. It's funny, like, as big a Beatles fan as I am, before Rubber Soul, or even, or maybe even Revolver, it's really easy for me to blur together what songs are on what albums. Yeah. It's also weird. Well, maybe this isn't a problem for us, but, like, I'm sure, like, some. Um, older American fans get screwed up because the way that Capitol distributed their albums, they would totally butcher the track listings and 
they basically released totally different albums from from the UK ones. I think I heard the reason for that is traditionally American albums weren't supposed to be that long. Like 14 tracks is way too long. Like American albums, like 10 out, like 10 tracks, like 25 minutes. And plus, like we could make we could make more money. Like, I'm supposed to be an American guy. We can make more money, see. <laughs> the gangsters that run the <laughs> Capitol Records. Uh, you see? We'll call it introducing the Beatles, you see? Because uh. <laughs> there's like, for like the first like five albums, I feel like there's like eight albums over in America. It's like, it's a fucking mess. And they butchered some of those. Like, rev- like American Revolver is pretty lame. I feel like they, yeah, it's like all Paul songs. They took off all the John songs. And it's the greatest album ever made. It's like, what are you <laughs> fucking doing? Yeah. Though a lot of people seem to be in agreement, myself included, that the American Rubber Soul is, I think, a little better. I actually do. I have that one on vinyl, and I, I like it better. You know, they really only, all they did was what, like, take off like maybe two tracks and add two tracks. But it just, it just, it, it fits better. Like, Drive My Car. It seems weird to go from Drive My Car to Norwegian Wood. It's such a tonal change. It's it's so much better to do. I've just seen a face. I need you. I need that in my ears. My number seven is all I've got to do. I have to sing most of my time. <laughs> That's from with the Beatles. I like that song because it's it's kind of it's pretty downbeat, and I like how it, it starts with kind of just like john lennon and the guitar and maybe there's like some tambourine but the drums kind of pick up a little later you know the verses are more like oh you know how it goes i don't need to sing it i didn't really actually i'm kind of glad you did sing it you know all i've got to do is call you on the phone with the beatles it's funny um out of those early ones i don't really like it as much as the other ones i don't know i kind of agree i feel like with the beatles isn't an amazing album (laughs) it's very cover heavy it's it's got too many yeah it's got too many covers and even the ones they did write like there are a few ones that yeah it seemed like they were kind of phoning it in but it's got one of the best album covers ever though but all i've got to do is hear your number seven colin my number seven is one you know called please please me hell yeah um yeah their first big hit in the uk I'm sure it was like a smaller hit in the U.S., but it's not on the Beatles 1, so I assume it didn't go to number 1. But then again, I feel like that compilation also used their U.K. number 1. It's weird. I don't know why they did that. They should have just taken off Love Me Do and put Please Please Me there. It's a way better song. But, uh, yeah, I feel like this is the one where, like, like the Beatles had to prove to George Martin that they could write a hit because, I mean, you know, bands back then didn't really write their own songs the way the Beatles sort of revolutionized that. Like, I remember he wanted them to record this other song. What's Rocket Man. Yeah, Rocket Man. <laughs> <laughs> Was it another song they did end up recording? Well, they actually did record the song, yeah, but they just didn't release it as a single. It was called How Do You Do What You Do To Me. I think Jerry and Jerry and the Pacemakers recorded it. Is that on, like, Past Masters Volume 1? Is that anywhere? <laughs> Maybe. It's probably at least on the anthology CDs. Might be on Past Masters. Yeah. Well, it's, like, not 
really a real Beatles song. But uh, yeah, please believe me, it's it's just a perfect song, just great, catchy. I awesome. feel like the harmonica sounds really interesting. How it, in relation to yeah. how it plays with the guitar. You don't, you don't hear harmonica like that a lot. It's like a harmonica riff. Because it's not like bluesy at all. Yeah. I really love how they integrated harmonica sometimes. You know, a lot of people, it's just... <laughs> like Mick Jagger. Like, I love it when Mick Jagger plays harmonica. But it's, it's never quite... It's not quite the same. But I still... It, there's some pretty great Mick Jagger. I gotta stop bashing on the Rolling Stones. I love the Rolling Stones. They're, they're a good band. <laughs> Give them a chance. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we must be on number six, and my number six is From Me to You. I believe that's a, just a single. Um, I think it's on Beatles 1. Let's see, uh, how's that go? With love from me to you, I don't everything. I like to sing them to like re-jog re re my memory. <laughs> I can't do a call on me. And yeah, just really catchy. Probably would have been their single after Please Please Me. Yeah, I don't remember how early that one was. It's a pretty early one. I think it was like their single right before they hit it big in the U.S. Yeah, that's that definitely early on, period. On, on Past Masters 1. You know, I don't think I've ever listened to Past Masters Volume 1. I've heard all the songs on it. I did, I I yeah, I definitely did a lot of digging from it for this list. Yeah, do you have German, I want to hold it. your hand or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, Mr. Gleeb. <laughs> I can't remember how it goes, but it's funny. Uh, for me, I don't have much to say about it. It's just, you know, it's catchy. It's got a nice rhythm to it. Uh, fun to sing along to. I remember when I was working at Barnes & Noble, we had Beatles 1 as one of our playlist CDs. And this one always like really picked me up, like especially something about it. <laughs> I think it's because I didn't. I don't tend to hear it as much as some, you know, some of the tracks that are on albums. Um, I don't know if it's yeah. one of their super memorable songs. It was a hit. Uh, I don't know if it was a hit in the states. Like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, catchy, like it. All right, I'm impressed. We haven't had any overlap. Not so yet. So you can go into the top five. <laughs> That's pretty good. So uh, my number six is "You've Got to Hide Your Love Away" from Help. It's I guess another one like "I'm a Loser" where John Lennon's <laughs> trying to be Bob Dylan. Um, just doing that acoustic thing, although I don't think he does a harmonica solo on it. Instead, it's got like a flute solo, which is pretty cool. Like, there's that scene in the movie Help where they're like all sitting around playing it in their beetle house, I guess. Things come out of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Organ and stuff. And then there's just like this peasant guy that plays flute in their house. <laughs> their flute? Well, have you ever seen a guy play a flute that's not a peasant? That's who plays I mean, flutes. Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, but he's like basically he's, a he's peasant. A <laughs> yeah, he's like a medieval peasant. <laughs> I'm sure before he was in that band, he was a surf. But yeah, that's that's a great song. I mean, that's definitely like them getting into Bob Dylan hard. You know, that's a song that I feel like is a little ahead of its time. It feels more like I feel like it'd be more at home on like Rubber Soul. Granted, Rubber Soul is only one album later. I feel like they're jumping the gun on like we're we're like kicking this up a notch. Check out, we're trying a new shit. We got flutes. <laughs> Got introspective lyrics. Just acoustic guitars. Yeah, the fuck? You can't do that live. What the fuck? Hey, what the fuck is this? See, this all play live, baby. Get out of my Hollywood bowl. I just love the idea. There's gangsters. There's, there's 1930s gangsters that run 
the American music industry. Whereas everyone in, in England is just it's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, boys. Maybe next time. All right. Uh, you're number five. Number five. Do you want to know a secret? My my only, I think my only George Harrison entry. Um, he didn't write it though, right? He just sings it. Oh, I don't know. Is that like, right? I feel like that's right. Do they really not trust him that much? That's probably right. They, I just, wow, they weren't very nice. They, they were kind of shitty to George in those early days, but it's like, he's like 19 years old. He's a little shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the intro to this song, I feel like, is kind of cheesy. But I actually really love the rest of this song. And the bridge mm-hmm. is a little weird, but like I, <laughs> I don't know. And George like doesn't sound super great on it, but it's like there's a lovable quirkiness to it. Mm-hmm. I feel like early George was so goofy. <laughs> you know, he he became almost later like this like spiritual like figure. It's very intro- the most introspective Beatle in a way, all, and sometimes the most serious. But early on, it's you know it's just like. You know, I'm happy just to dance with you and all this like quirky stuff. Yeah, it it is just a Lennon McCartney composition sung by George. Um, I love how he sounds. I love his little dinky guitars. I shouldn't say dinky. I love George's early guitar work. It's very memorable, catchy. His lead work is incredibly clean. It, it it's a lot like Ringo's drumming. It just gives the song exactly what it needs. And like we know from like later on in his career that he's a very versatile guitarist. Like he could do a lot more, but he was doing exactly what he needed for those songs. And then later he was like, Ooh, "Look at all this shit. Check out this. Check out what I can do on here." Comes the sun. <laughs> okay, so I feel like I don't have enough Paul songs on my list, but number five is a Paul song called "Things We." What's it called? Things We Said Today. today. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> it's got a nice like moody. Guitar strum going through it. It's like it's funny how easy it is to like re-trigger it. Yeah, it's like the titles are not very memorable, but like when you once you start singing the melody, you're like, oh, it's this one. I guess uh, another reason I wanted to represent uh, or wanted to put this song on there was to represent a hard day's night, which I feel like I feel like that might be the best sort of album as a representation of the Beatlemania era of them because it is the one out of all their early albums where they wrote every song on it every song's a Lennon McCartney composition and they're all pretty good and I think I'll be able to build on that with my next pick Cool. unless you want to add any more to that okay my number four is And I Love Her Uh, that song feels very ahead of its time for me just like with the little there's that little like kind of picking like part that's later on it and it's just there's like almost a spanish kind of guitar solo well, yeah they use like a, one of those nylon guitars well there you go that would that would explain that and it's so like i don't want to say sad but it's just so moody it's such a moody piece and it's so pleasant it's just it's just crazy to think you know just like a year before or even what yeah just like a year before they're still you know roll over beethoven all that stuff and they go from that to this and it seems like man they must have been so ahead of the curve like with every other band i can't imagine a lot of other bands in 1964 doing this kind of music that was definitely one thing i i thought about after watching that documentary was just like what it would be like to be another sort of successful rock band in the 60s just be like 
dude, we just recorded this fucking sweet album. People are gonna love it, and then it's like, oh shit, the Beatles just re dropped Revolver. <laughs> Fuck. Because <laughs> like, you look at a lot of other great '60s bands, like even ones I love, like The Who. Like it took The Who a little bit longer to kind of tap into something really like ahead of like ahead of its time. Maybe that's a bad example, but there's there's definitely some bands that were like not quite up to speed yet. All right. Uh, my number four, eh, another sort of more well-known one. I feel fine. Come on, it's got the feedback. Boom, yeah. Come on. I can just listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, I really like that guitar riff in it. It's a little sort of unconventional, I feel like, for that time. It, it almost, to me, kind of hints at like their interest in Indian music. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that guitar riff, but it's really cool. That's one that I always feel like is later. I forget that it was an early one that they play live and stuff. Like it feels like it's for me it should be revolver time. Yeah. With how with like the distortion and stuff, but no, like that's older. And that's really cool. And God, I love that drum part too. Like, oh yeah, it's like it's, a, it's like almost like jazzy. No, I, I remember. I think Ringo said that uh, what I'd say by Ray Charles was like the main inspiration for that drum part. And you can totally tell that. Yeah, mm, it definitely has that feel. A lot of great <laughs> cymbal work. Oh yeah, I feel fine. I can't remember if that's one that I used to like try to play on guitar and it failed, and I just <laughs> it's like such a good riff. One of the best Beatles riffs. There's an interesting list. Best Beatles riffs. Just riffs, not melodies. Just the riff. One of the best ones. Yeah, I would say so. It's hard to say, like, you count, like, a little acoustic thing as a riff. Like, is Here Comes the Sun, like, considered, like, a riff? Mm. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good, that's a memorable part. Uh, I don't know. But I feel fine. I feel pretty good about that. I also feel fine about my number three. It's definitely the most famous song on my list. I didn't want to include it because it's going to be on everyone's list. It's such a famous song. But I just I couldn't do a top ten without including Yesterday. I had to have it on here somewhere. Um, you know, it's like one of the most covered pop songs in history. If, if it might be number one. I feel like I, I normally hear it is number one. It just It's so hard to believe, but I guess so. And... It's just great lyrics. That guitar part is great, you know, and that they stripped it down so early on too in their career. Like that's one of the few ones where it's like, wow, they're doing that live, like this stripped down acoustic song. Like that's that's crazy. Yeah, this rock show and then yeah, and it's like not only is it completely acoustic, they kind of took it a step further from what anyone else was doing and put a string quartet on it, and it's just like this. This is not rock music at this point, but. It's good. I mean, the stuff that had strings on it back then was like Lawrence Welk bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah. not, not pop rock songs. Mm -hmm. Or like weird 50s ballads. Like, certainly not a cool, cool young band. It's pretty mature of them. I, I wonder if that was just like, if they want to do that, or George Martin's like, here, you're like, no, you definitely have to do this. You have to do it, this. It feels more like a George Martin move. I mean, when they got more into their studio their studio era i feel like he is sort of indispensable from what made them so great like i don't i'm in that book um 
revolution in the head. There is a part where Ian McDonald says, like, there was no record producer on either side of the Atlantic that could have, you know, facilitated the Beatles' creativity in the way that George Martin did. And I, I feel like that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's interesting. Early on, he kind of just felt like their taskmaster, their boss, keeping them in line. Yeah. And then as they grew, he really just kind of became another member of the band and a <laughs> collaborator. Uh, yeah, he's just fantastic. All right, Colin, you're number three. Let's see. What is my number three? Oh, I also, for my number three, put a really famous Beatles song. It's uh, She Loves You. Can't fuck with it. It's 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 just a perfect pop song i i've always preferred it over i want to hold your hand i think because it 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 has more immediacy to it like that's kind of the word i sort of think of when i think of the early beatles is it has the immediacy of youth on its side where it's like these guys are just young guys making this music that's nothing but pure unadulterated joy and it's a song about you know what the greatest feeling just knowing that there's a girl that's all about you like yeah, it's, it's just it's hard to fuck with a song like that. So good. I don't. Why didn't I have that on my list? God damn it! Uh, I knew that was gonna happen. I, was like, I I thought you might say it at number. Actually, I thought you might say I want to hold your hand at number three, but you didn't yesterday. Those are like the big three. Pretty much. <laughs> and I saw her standing there. Is pretty. Uh, she loves. Is that on an album? What is, what is that? I think it's just a single. It's probably on with the Beatles. In, or not with the Beatles, but meet the Beatles. Another reason this this list was so hard was I had to remember where everything was. Because the thing about the Beatles, like, there, just as many bands were recording this much, but very few bands were recording this much good stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to forget, like, oh, like, if this was, a, like, a song for any other band, it would have been the, their biggest hit ever, and they'd just be playing that all the time. The Beatles is just another song mm-hmm. that just happens to be great. Okay, my number two. God, we're getting we're almost we're almost down to number one. Wow, is um uh also from Hard Day's Night, which is one of my favorite albums, and it's I Should Have Known Better, um featuring harmonica in a more traditional way. But I think the reason I fell in love with this song is mainly I love that scene in Hard Day's Night where they're on the train, you know, and they're just like sitting there, and then John Lennon picks up his harmonica. And I just love that. It's like, you know, it's an early, like an early music video, that that great scene in that movie. And I, I love the harmonica, and I love... It's one of my favorite John Lennon songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Is Ringo even playing a drum kit? Is he playing, like, box? Is it in, the, the, in, the, in, the, in the scene? I don't remember. He's probably... I don't remember, you know. Maybe playing boxes. I feel like some of those early rock songs have, like, interesting-sounding percussion sometimes, but I'm sure it's something traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I just love the John Lennon's voice of the the harmonica and the melody, and I love that kind of. I guess you go with the bridge that. And when I tell you that I love her, oh. like sometimes in a good song, the bridge will be like kind of like an afterthought, you know. But like Beatles songs, sometimes it was like, oh, this is like just as good as the chorus part, <laughs> and I think that's one of those cases. So love it, just love it to death. Tom, you're number two. Okay, this is going to be an unconventional choice. I don't even know if you know this song. You probably do, but you might not remember it. But it's definitely one I kind of discovered rereading or reading that book, Revolution in the Head. And I 
yeah, it's just like, whoa, there's this awesome Beatles song I'd never heard before, and I really love it. It's called Yes It Is. Do you know that one? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Well, (laughs) see, that's a good thing. You got a Beatles song to discover, and it's really good. It's one, it's, uh, yeah, it's another one that feels kind of ahead of its time, because I think it was a 64 B-side. I don't know what single it was for, but um, it's a very sort of, like, bare, emotional, sort of tender ballad sung by John Lennon, which he definitely seemed afraid to do a lot of times in those early Beatles years. And it's also got that same sort of... Um, what do you call it? The effect that George uses on I Need You, the delay effect, it also has that. So it gives it like this weird, like haunting vibe that I just love. Oh. What, how, do you remember how that was originally released? I, I, I think it was a B-side. And uh, like, is it famously on any compilation? I mean, I'm sure it's on tons it's, of It's on the Past Masters compilation. Um, but I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's not on like an album. It's probably on, maybe it was on an American album. Yeah, it was a B-side. You know, it could be that maybe I heard it years ago. So I feel like I, I've at least skimmed Past Masters. Maybe I haven't listened to all of it. Because, yeah, that doesn't sound familiar. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I just haven't heard it at all. So that's, I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah. That makes me feel pretty lame, though. <laughs> it's like I, I should mean, know them all. I'm sure there are not many that you don't know. Because, you know, this was one of the very few I wasn't familiar with. Wow. Cool. Definitely going to check that out. Excited. Uh, God, down to my number one. Wow. So let me uh, let me see what's the best way to introduce this song. So this is a song that I've liked for a very long time. Um, like when I was in high school and I'd make like... <laughs> Do you remember back in the days like of iTunes glory days when they'd be like iTunes celebrity playlist? <laughs> yeah. And celebrities totally. be like, these are like my 10 favorite or 12 favorite songs. And like I'd always like want to like do an imaginary one for myself and like you know, I got to put a Beatles song on there. The Beatles are one of my favorite. They are my favorite band of all time. But like, I don't want to just put like, you know, something or, or, or you know, or I want I want to put, you know, something uh, unique and original. And I, I remember falling in love with this song that I didn't know that well back then. And it's just one of my favorite songs now. And that's There's a Place. Uh, uh, second to last song on Please Please Me. It's amazing because it's their first album, but I feel like that one is like, I don't know. It's 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 not like it's pretty emotional. There's a place that's in my mind, and I love that lyric. Like, like there's a place I can go, and it's in my mind. Like, <laughs> I know the lyrics back then for a lot of Beatles songs weren't that introspective, and a lot of people kind of make fun of them. But I really like that. You know, like kind of. I feel like that's a kind of an introspective thought. You know, for the time, and I, I'm really impressed by that. It's another one with a really cool harmonica sound. I feel like they put a shitload of reverb on it. It's it's very it's very much like the dark brother of the Please Please Me. You know, it's yeah. like you have that song, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have his sad, depressed, fat brother. There's a place. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, love that song. Always love that song. I'll always put it on my John celebrity playlist. <laughs> Con, nice. your number one. Pick. My number one is not an obscure one. Uh, it was actually the A side to Yes It Is is B side. It's a uh, ticket to ride. I don't know. This song just like feels to me sort of like the turning point where the Beatles were like, 
we're doing these songs. They're kind of a little off kilter and kind of got this more wheel world weary vibe to them. I just, you know, Ringo's drum part where it's like kind of stuttering and stopping and like, you know, the the arpeggiated guitar part and then like the droning guitar part. It's just so many cool things going on in the song. And I feel, I feel like it was definitely during that middle like help period where John Lennon like seemed like kind of depressed because the whole Beatle mania thing had kind of, I don't know, flatlined or plateaued or whatever. And he wasn't feeling that rush of it anymore. And he's feeling kind of empty inside and writing songs like this and still like making them into huge pop hits. Um, yeah, I just think it's a great song. You know, I love you bring up all the parts because I, you know, every time we mention a song on this podcast, I start breaking it down in my head and doing all the individual parts. And I can just enjoy one part, like singing that part or melody or rhythm part in my head. Like mm-hmm. you talked about the drums. It's really interesting drum part in that. I can't like do it for like. Yeah, it's like. And then, you know, great guitar work. And yeah, it's just like how it all came together. Like all those parts really matter. They're all they also you can all hear them like perfectly. It's mixed perfectly. It's just catchy, and it's your go-to song when you're like in traffic. You're like here's our daily traffic report. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my drive my car. Ticket to ride. That'd be like that'd be like train commuting. <laughs> here's your daily train report. Yeah. I don't even. What am I talking? about? Train report. That's not true. <laughs> Don't let anybody, like no one knows about trains. They would have just assumed, oh yes, trade report, trade report. <laughs> yeah, like, oh I know what to talk about. But if Joe Biden was listening, he'd be fucking pissed. <laughs> all right, so yeah, there's our top tens. Um, I'll I, I'll probably put all the music in later so you can hear it. I don't even need to say that because by the time you'll hear this, you'll be hearing that. So, but hey. This is the moment I decided it was going to happen, okay? So fucking appreciate it, okay? Uh, okay, what's funny is uh, the segment we usually end our podcast with is called Yesterday and Today. Because um, uh, it's where we talk about an older album that we could recommend that we've been listening to lately and a more recent album that we've been listening to. It's named after one of those American... Beatles albums that we we're bashing that only came out in the U.S. It was also in my Ed Sullivan introduction, so I, I don't know which came first or if it's just a coincidence, but mm. I thought that was interesting. Yes. Um, my yesterday is really boring pick because you're probably pretty sick at this point of hearing about it, but it's what I was listening to, and it's a hard day's night. I mean, how could I not? I was I watched the documentary, I got prepped, and that's the one I gravitated towards. I think, you know, Colin, you brought up, it's probably their best of the, the early albums. It's the one that feels the most complete. It doesn't have any covers. It has the accompanying film, but I'm not, I'm just weighing it solely on the album. And it's <laughs> just such a strong group of songs. And yeah, uh, I had this, I was just, you know, doing some work, uh, writing and stuff and had it on it's like oh, this is so good it's hard for me to focus on anything because it's so easy to just sing along to it but uh yeah i don't know that there's much to say because we've talked <laughs> yeah, about night so much i don't know like i now i feel dumb because i didn't pick a beetle related thing for my yesterday <laughs> like, do you want me to i could pivot here 
You want me to recommend Ram by Paul McCartney? That's a good album. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone is sick of Beatles at this point. All right, fine. I'll I'll take you into a place that's not really very Beatles-y. Uh, my yesterday is Control by Janet Jackson. Wow, that is definitely a yeah. different direction. <laughs> That's why I feel so stupid. But <laughs> hey, it's it's also pop music. I don't know if there's a connection. Um, yeah, this is an album I picked up. Uh, I didn't like go out of my way to listen to it. Like I wasn't seeking it out, but I was at a record store and just skimming through like the new arrivals in the R&B section. I was like. Hmm, Janet Jackson. I've never checked out her stuff. I like Michael Jackson. And then, uh, yeah, it's really good. It's interesting because it sounds a lot more like a Prince album than a Michael Jackson album, which makes sense because it was produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis for Flight Time Productions. Um, who I guess were, I think they were maybe in the time at some point. I mean, they, they were Minneapolis guys in the early 80s, so they definitely had a lot of Prince connections. Um, yeah, just this is kind of the album where Janet Jackson became like a huge thing. Uh, Nasties on here. Uh, what have you done for me lately? It's another one. Okay, yeah, that sounds familiar. I thought the only song I knew was Rhythm Nation, but that sounds familiar. Yeah, I feel like that is the album most people think of as a big Janet Jackson album, but no, this one's got a bunch of hits. Uh, when I Think of You is another really cool song. It has like an awesome 80s bass line to it. Um, yeah, it's good stuff. Wait, wait, what year did that come out? <sighs> Let's see. I got the record in my hand right now. 1986. Yeah. What's the cover? What's the cover look like? Is it sexy? No, it's like she's just in control, man. Cause this was the album she did. Like, I think she did her first solo album, and she felt like her dad was having way too much input on her career. And this is kind of her striking out on her own album, just fucking nailing it. It's a cool album cover. It's very simple. It's just her like standing in a pose. Against a red background, I don't know why I'm describing this. To no, because because great, because now I'll draw a picture and I bet it'll be exactly what the hell. <laughs> now I have a perfect visual image. She looks like the the letter I. I don't. <laughs> I need these visual indicators. I mean, I could just look it up on my computer, but I want you to describe it to me. <laughs> to a thirty-year-old album. You know, it'll help the listeners visualize what you're holding in your hand. <laughs> yes, that's what we strive for. Audio-visual experience. <laughs> the best we can. Okay, my Today album, uh, it's not something that came out super recently, though it did come out this year. I definitely listened to it when it came out, but it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I kind of got back into it. It's a recent band that I really love, and that's Human Performance by Parquet Courts. Um, they're just, they just won't stop releasing albums. It's getting a little ridiculous. Like Since their debut, which I was pretty into uh, in 2012, Light Up Gold, they released two albums in 2014, and now they have a new album this year. Didn't they also release some albums under like a moniker? Like it was like Parquet Quartz. I think they did. Like I've seen that differently. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason they can release so much is they do that this kind of weird style. They kind of remind me of uh, what are they called? Uh, Wire, 
Yeah. Like they'll do like short songs that are weird and experimental, but they're still like fun and kind of punky, almost sometimes kind of Minutemen like. You know that def they're definitely post-punk where there's these little quirky songs like I probably just wrote this in my basement when I was 17 and now we're putting it on an album <laughs> you know and they do so many of those I'm sure they have like just hundreds of songs like those so they can just spread them out over their albums and they've been incredibly consistent so far it's it's almost hard for me to uh, separate what songs are on what albums like I just had one in my head I was like oh I'll bring up that one like oh wait no that was on the last one <laughs> but no they're so good I love their uh weird arrangements and that they're like i bet these guys are pretty good musicians but they make it sound like they're almost they're learning to play or something or they're, they're just starting out and you know sometimes like i feel like bands do their best albums when they like their first album or like when they first start out everything's so fresh and building up and somehow i feel like they've kept that like their albums still feel like they're by a bunch of young group of guys even though this is what their fourth album and who knows how many other side albums I don't know. Have you listened to much Parquet Courts, Colin? Yeah, I listened to the first two albums. I listened. To, I think I listened, to, I listened to this one too, but I only listened to it like once. Like I'm fine with them. I don't know. It's usually like I feel like those first two albums. There's just like one song that I really love, and the rest I'm just like it's it's fine. They definitely have like their breakout songs every yeah. album. Uh, this one I can't remember. Dust was pretty good, but like on the first one, like. Borrowed Time was Borrowed like time. such a yep, great that's song. The one. <laughs> and then the song that I thought was um, on this one that I really love, but I was like, oh, wait, no, that was on the second album, is Bodies Made Of. Mm. Bodies Made yeah. Of. Slugs and Guts. Bodies <laughs> Made Of. Um, what I keep singing from this album is this song that's called, like, I Was Just Here. I Was Just Here. I don't even know what the fuck it's about, but it's like how there's these weird rhymes and it's talking about Chinese food and stuff. Yeah. I guess it's up to me to picture or to kind of put it together it also kind of remind me of um if you ever heard of camper van beethoven mm -mm. well yeah i've heard of him but i've not heard his the music they kind of remind me of that they're definitely that weird like they have that early 80s post-punk vibe mm -hmm. um which isn't as easy to replicate as i think you know some people think it is so they do mm -hmm. a good job they came by live this summer i'm really disappointed i didn't go i thought that would have been a fun show but maybe next time i'm sure they'll have two <laughs> albums out next year well, I'll, I'd go with you. Your Today album. Um, <laughs> I've been listening to the, the Angel Olsen album a lot, but I just wrote a review for it, so I don't need to talk about it. Uh, one that also just came out like a week or two ago that I've been liking uh, is... Shit, let me look up. What's the name of it? I had I to look up uh, Parquet Courts. It's <laughs> tough when you listen to a lot of albums. Well, it's also hard when it's a long album. Uh, I Had a Dream That You Were Mine by Hamilton Lighthouser and uh, Rostam. That being Rostam Batmanglish, is how you say it, from Vampire Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. He's already do. I know he left Vampire Weekend, so I didn't know he was already doing other stuff. Yeah, this was surprising to me, because, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Walkman, but they uh, broke up a few years ago, and Hamilton Lighthouser was their lead singer and i don't know I, I never listened to his first solo album just because i don't know it wasn't the walkman and um this one it, it kind of does feel like a continuation of that last walkman record where it's it's not as angry or sort of punky as that band could sometimes be it's i don't know what you would exactly call it like it's very it's very classy sounding it's like classy indie pop 
I don't know. Lots of piano too, because Rostam, obviously. And he, you know, it, it has like that, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a very sort of plunky piano sound that you heard on that last Vampire Weekend album, which is fucking amazing. Um, I think it's, it's definitely good if you're a fan of either Vampire Weekend or The Walkman. I think it's a little more for Walkman fans, but it, it's got a nice Vampire Weekend sound too. You can definitely hear his influence. It feels like a collaboration, which I guess it's billed as, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know this existed. Oh, it looks like it just came out last month, so I guess that's why I could have put that It's in my pretty room. new, yeah. I think it got a pitchfork, best new music, which is probably why I checked it out, because I was like, oh, this Hamilton Lighthouser album's actually good. Sometimes there's just so much stuff to sift through, so. Yeah. I, I probably looked at this on there and didn't even realize what it was. Mm -hmm. now like i haven't listened to a lot of walkman but i like them okay but like i mean vampire weekend like their last album is basically my favorite album of this decade so <laughs> i think just for that i should probably at least check it out yeah i like it he's he's got a great voice he can go so high like when you listen to those songs you don't think about the register he's singing up in but like i watched them play on i think it was colbert and he's just like he, he feels like he's like like putting his whole body into singing those super high notes. I can't even fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's good. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about Rostam not being in Vampire Weekend now. I, I mean, obviously, says. I'm sad about it because because he clearly had a huge influence on. How good they were, especially listening to something like this. We can feel feel his presence on it. Most bands, most bands definitely have a point, even the greatest ones, where they're going to go downhill. Yeah. Or they're just not going to be quite as good. You know, they're going to peak. Even great bands like Led Zeppelin peaked. You know, their last couple albums aren't that great. And like Vampire Weekend, I mean, they've only got three albums. And even though I think their last one may be the best one they'll ever do, I still thought, well, they could probably still keep doing some pretty good ones, but now I'm definitely, like, I don't know, and I, I'm a little worried. Although, they, I think they said, like, he would still maybe record with them. I thought I heard that, too, that he was maybe still going to... So, maybe. Because, like, no offense to the other two guys in Vampire Weekend, they're solid, but no, no way they fucking do anything but play. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's all Ezra, Ezra and Rostam, so... Ooh, we'll see. I'm sure we'll talk about that on a future episode of Rock Talk. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can check us out at mildlyplease.com or go to iTunes and search Mildly Please, and you can check out our other shows like Pitching Tense, Stream Please, all that good stuff. Um, so, you know, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of Colin and myself, and I hope we pass the audition. Ooh.